lot of crying and a lot of coughing in here today. So, sounds like our church. So, um, so uh, we've been doing this series on First Peter, and we're up to First Peter two eighteen through twenty five. We would have done this text last week, uh, but only one hundred and fifty of you showed up. I don't know where the rest of you were last week. Anyway, uh, to the one hundred and fifty who showed up, um, you're awesome, and you uh, overcame your uh, cabin fever. And made it to worship, so um, that was awesome. Um, at West End, we, we preach through books, <clears throat> and that's what a lot of people think when I say that, uh, that uh, they're like, move on to something else. Um, but uh, the reason why we preach through books here uh, generally is because of the text I'm about to read to you, because nobody in his right mind in 2016 America would preach about slaves, except that it's in the Bible, except that it has something to say to every single one of us, and it elevates before us the cross of Christ. So it's worth looking at uh, this morning. So um, uh, let me read to you First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. It's in the bulletin, also up on the screens behind me, and... Um, This is God's word, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So um, let me be quick this morning and just point out a couple of things to you about what this text has to say. We'll, We'll come back to this next week, but look at the beginning of the bulletin in my letter. There's a couple of things I want you to think about as we uh, jump into the text this morning. The first thing is, uh, the very first sentence, uh, as we said last week, actually two weeks ago, just because God tells us to submit to some authority does not mean that he approves of that authority. Okay? So you've got to remember that. Uh, and and that's, there's uh, all sorts of reasons why God might do that for order, for his glory, for our good. Uh, But there are ample places in the scriptures where we see where God tells us to submit, and yet at the same time, he uh, is at work in overthrowing that unjust authority that he's just told us to submit to. Secondly, you need to note that in the context where this uh, passage is given, um, there is no concept of human rights, particularly for poor people, particularly for uh, people who are slaves, and in fact, 
the economic situation was such that there were some people who actually were so poor they would sell themselves to somebody else as a means of survival, okay? And so, so you have to understand that when we come at this, we come at this from the situation of uh, a general agreement uh, in, in society and culture that people have some rights and uh, that people, um, um, and that those rights should be, should be asserted and protected. Uh, one of the most liberal thinkers leading up to this period in time, the philosopher Aristotle, actually said that slavery was appropriate because some people were born free and they should be free, and some people just were better off as slaves. And he was one of the more liberal thinkers at the time. So when we hear this and we react to this, you have to put that first in that context. And thirdly, you have to see that the consistent overwhelming witness of the word of God is that all people have dignity, are created in the image of God, and have the possibility through Jesus Christ to be redeemed and restored fully to his image. And so, regardless of status or power or place. So we have to keep those three things in mind as we look at this text. So, um, 1 Peter 2.18 might be one of the most difficult verses in the Bible. And, and, I, and I'll tell you why, because anytime we read, uh, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. I, I think being told to love your enemies is really hard, but I think being told to obey someone and submit to someone who is unjust might actually be harder. So let's, let's place this in the context of what Peter's already written, because just before this he's written, submit yourselves to every created human institution on account of the Lord, right? And so it's because of Jesus Christ and because they belong to him that he tells them to do this. At the same time, he says, live as free people, not as those using your freedom as a cover for evil, but as God's slaves. Now, do you see the juxtaposition there? You're supposed to live as free people, and you are free people because you're God's slaves. And because you're God's slaves, because of what Christ has done for you, because he bought you with a price, you're free, but you're not. You're free, but you belong to God. You're free, but because you're free, you submit. Right? That's the logic that he's getting at, right? And then he says those great four commands at the end, honor everyone, love fellow Christians, reverence God, honor the emperor. And we talked about those, those things a couple of weeks ago. Next slide, please, Megan. So he's now going to address this to particular kinds of people in the church, right? And so basically what he's going to say here now is, okay, this is This is how you're going to apply this very directly in your lives. And the first specific group of people he's going to address is slaves. Now, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that the reason why he does that is because chances are the vast majority of the people in this congregation are slaves. The vast majority of people in this church are people with no rights who are viewed simply as property. Now, Now, let me... And you hear that and you get your, you know, you start to get your back up a little bit and the hair starts to stick up on the back of your neck and you start getting self-righteous about it. But let me tell you about this, how this works. 
two of my kids uh, on college campuses get hounded by campus ministries. And the reason why they get hounded is because they're viewed as influencers. They're, they got mouths. They got big personalities. They're leaders. And so campus ministry people see them and are like, we got to get that kid in our ministry because they can have some influence. There's some power there. There's some status there. That's a great, that's, 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 that's a great strategy. Except it's exactly the opposite of the strategy of whoever planted this church. Because he planted it precisely with the people with a zero influence. Zero. None. Property. Okay? I don't even know how they got to church. Because if you belong to somebody else, your time is not your own. So how did that happen? I don't know. I don't know. But those are the first people uh, uh, that he mentions, right? And so, uh, but the other thing that you have to see about this is how important it is that they get mentioned at all. It should be noted first and foremost that the fact that slaves are addressed and that they have moral responsibilities, in other words, Peter is going to hold them accountable to the fact that because Jesus Christ was a slave, and because he came as a servant, and because he died for them, and because he bought them, and because he owned them, they are accountable. There are certain things now that they are responsible for in their lives. So, so that slaves are addressed and that they have moral responsibilities is unique, and in its time, uh, nobody thought about that. In fact, most people thought, you don't, you don't, because slaves are not people, they can't have morals. So he elevates them to the status of human beings and not property. In society at large, slaves were not full persons and thus cannot have moral responsibility. In the church, slaves were viewed as full persons and are addressed as such. So the very fact that Peter is writing and saying, listen, because of Jesus Christ, because of your identity in him, this is a way in which you can give him glory. This is a way in which you can have the pleasure of God. This is a way you can identify with Christ. This is a way Jesus has identified with you. Live this way. Submit, right? Next slide. So, and the thing that's interesting about this is there's a consistent message in the New Testament about this, right? So, so when Paul, in Ephesians and Colossians, where Paul addresses slaves, he also addresses masters as well. Interesting, interesting. That must have been a really uncomfortable service, right? He says in Ephesians, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. You see, the, the fact of the matter is inherent in this is 
is the full view that when God looks at a human being, he doesn't see them as whether they are a servant, whether they are a slave, whether they are a king. He sees them as someone who is created in his image, someone in need of redemption, and someone uh, who is of infinite worth of, of indignity and value. And so to view someone as property and to use them as property is heinous because not only does it go against the very will of God, it goes against the very design of God and the way in which he's made human beings. Now, there are no masters addressed in 1 Peter. And I think the reason for that is because there aren't any there. Um, And in fact, they are in a very grim situation. Because at least the, 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 the slaves who were in the church at Ephesus uh, and the slaves who were in the church at Corinth could look down the row at their masters when they're being addressed and say, God holds you accountable. There's no way they can do that in this particular case. In uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24, slaves and free men are addressed. He says, were were you a bondservant? Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Now, do you see a theme that's emerging here? That the the way we look at people and the status that we put on people uh, gets overturned in the gospel, right? So if you're a slave... In the world, the fact is you're a freed man in Christ, right? But likewise, he who was freed then is called a bondservant in Christ. So, so Jesus is overturning the way in which we think about that. You think you're free, but if you're in Christ, you belong to him. You think you're a slave, but if you're in Christ, you're free, right? So you're bought with a price. You've been bought. Every single person who belongs to Jesus Christ has been bought, body and soul, with the blood of Jesus Christ. A price has been paid. You were bought and paid for. You were redeemed to belong to him forever, right? So do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And then lastly, the book of Philemon, which is a letter Paul wrote to a a man named Philemon who was a master, who was a slaveholder, when he sent his slave Onesimus, who had stolen from him and run away from him. Paul comes across him in in Rome, and Onesimus, the slave, the the thieving runaway slave, uh, gets converted. And so Paul is going to send him back. But notice notice how he's going to send him back. I appeal to you, that's to the owner there, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now notice that, the kind of language that he uses. I'm like his dad, right? Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Not just a piece of property. I'm sending someone who's my very heart, someone who is so dear to me. I describe him as my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul is appealing to his conscience in the gospel, in Christ. 
to treat, even though he has the right given by that culture to have Onesimus killed, Paul is appealing to him saying, look, he's your brother in Christ. He's dear to me. You need to treat him as a brother in Christ. For this is perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, as a brother. Not just property, not just a servant, but a brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. There's the promissory note. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. In other words, the very fact that you have an eternity in Christ, you owe me everything, but you know what? I'll pay you back if he stole from you. So here's some principles that we can uh, run through real quickly. First of all, in Christ, if we're in Christ, we are all slaves and we're all free. Okay? We are his slaves. We are slaves to no man, but we are free. And we are free at the same time to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake because it pleases him, because it is a gracious thing, but even more than that. In Christ, all our brothers and sisters, every single person in, on this planet who has ever lived, who trusted Jesus Christ, regardless of color or economics or status or power or political persuasion or whatever, are your brothers and sisters. You are their family. They belong to you and you belong to them. In Christ, I can bear up under the unjust, and that word there is not just unjust, but it's the word crooked, where we get the word uh, for scoliosis, knowing that I am living to the one who actually owns me. Next slide. Now, what makes this even more challenging is that Peter says, not just that you just have to bear up under this, but this is actually what you've been called to do. Now, <laughs> this is what you've been called to do. So what you've been called to do. Let me read this again. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. It is something that God sees. It is something that God gets excited about. It is something that pleases him. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you, when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endured. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, let me tell you what. I, if the passage ended right there, I would reject this. That's strong, I know, but I'm trying to get you to pay attention. Because not only is Jesus the pattern, not only is he the example, but we read on. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so what he's getting at here is it's just that, that you submit to unjust authority, not simply because Jesus made you an example. That's certainly true. He set an example. He says to you, this is what you have to do. And if we just leave it at that, then, then we're just left with this example hanging out there that condemns us. But if we see that he did this for me, that he actually at the cross where I see him dying, this is not just an example, it is atonement, where he is healing me, where he is being wounded, where he is bearing my sin, my guilt. It is crushing him, and because of that, that justice and that injustice, that mercy and that unmerciful act, I now have the ability where I can, because of Christ, because of his love, because of his atonement, and because I am mindful of the one who loved me, I can submit. So uh, in uh, The Reason for God, Tim Keller writes this about a woman whose mother was uh, murdered uh, by her boyfriend. And he says this, so Joanne Tyrrell wrote about how her mother was murdered by her mother's boyfriend. And I think this is a great quote here. I had to find a connection Uh, between my story, my mom's story, and Jesus's story. Isn't that a great, doesn't that sum up the hard things in life that we're trying to find a connection between my story and Jesus's story, right? Isn't that what we're doing all the time? How in the world does the gospel have anything to do with this stinking mess, right? She found it in understanding the cross, Namely, that Jesus did not only suffer for us, but with us. He knew what it was like literally to be under the lash. And to to refuse to be cowed by those in power and to pay for it with his life. He voluntarily took his place beside those who were without power and suffering from injustice. Therefore, the cross when properly understood, cannot possibly be used to encourage the oppressed to simply accept violence. Do you hear that? When Jesus suffered for us, he was honoring justice. But when Jesus suffered with us, he was identifying with the oppressed of the world, not with their oppressors. All life-changing love entails an exchange, a reversal of places. But here is the great reversal. God, in the place of ultimate power, reverses places with the marginalized, the poor, the enslaved, and the oppressed. The prophets always sing songs about God who has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the poor. But never could they have imagined that God himself would come down off his ultimate throne and suffer with the oppressed so that they might be lifted up. The pattern of the cross means, and and honestly, we should change this, not uh, that the world's glorification. What we should do there is we should say this pattern of the cross means that Steve's glorification of power might and status is exposed and defeated.
or Matt's or Tim's or Sarah's. So what Peter's doing here is mind-blowing. He says, you know what? By submitting unjustly, you will experience Jesus Christ in more authentic ways, in richer ways, in more profound ways than you ever imagined. We don't like that. I'll take him in my painless, successful, status-driven, comfortable life. Perhaps today, your comfort, my comfort, my status, your status, your money, my money, keeps us from having and identifying with Jesus in a full way that these souls knew, these unnamed slaves who were simply property understood the gospel in ways that I never will. So I'm going to stop and we're going to pray because... Uh, it's just too hard. <laughs> it's just too hard. And uh, I, I can sense and I know for my own self as well as for you that I don't want to hear this and I want some caveats and I want off the hook. So we better pray. If I'm feeling that, if, then yeah. And I've been thinking about this for two weeks. So... Um, we should pray. Lord, forgive us for our willfulness. Forgive us for our demand uh, to have our own way. Forgive us for our unwillingness to submit to you. Forgive us for our unbelief to see you uh, as uh, not just an example, but as the atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, forgive us for being too much of the world and buying into its views of status, power, and influence. Lord, we confess uh, that um, this, uh, this promise that you're pleased, that it's a gracious thing in your sight when we suffer unjustly, uh, is hard. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would help us, that you would teach us what this means, and that you would set us free uh, from uh, the claims and uh, the, the perspective that says life is about comfort and power and influence. Jesus, thank you that you identified with the oppressed. And I pray today for those of us who are oppressors uh, that you would hold us accountable, that you would challenge us. I pray for the, those today who are oppressed, that you would meet them 
that you would show them yourself, your cross, your death, and that they would be renewed and restored and energized by the fact that their Lord is one of them. Jesus, help us today, we pray, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As the guys come up to take up the offering, let me remind you to drop your tear off in the plate. Please don't feel pressure to give. Only give today if it's a part of your worship in response to God's goodness and grace. Mm -hmm.